pray together and then we'll open them up. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to be together with you, to hear your voice, to open your word and, and study it, to know that it's not, um, it's not empty, it's not old, it's not dusty, it's not ancient. Lord, it is uh, living and active. You have a word for us today. Lord, to think about what your desire is for us as people, your desire is that we would engage you, your word, your spirit today, not that we've done that once or we had that moment in the past, but that there is a, um, a fresh receptivity in us to what you want to say and do, and Lord, a fresh readiness to go and carry your name. And I pray that each one of us would be ready for whatever that is, whatever you have to say and whatever you want to do through us. So prepare our hearts well, Lord. We love you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen. So for the last few weeks, we've been in a series called God Has a Name uh, based on Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. Two verses, we're doing seven weeks on two verses in the Old Testament. Uh, that's a lot of time to spend on two verses, but the main reason that we are looking at these two verses is that they are absolutely core to understanding who God is. They teach us about God. The Bible itself uses these verses more than any other verses in the entire Bible. It's the most often quoted or alluded to passage in the entire Bible by the Bible, and it helps us understand who God is. It gives us a framework. We've talked about this in a number of ways, but one of the ways that we've talked about it is God giving us the, the parameters of his character so that as we get into relationship with him, we know who he is and what he is going to be like. He's telling us, this is my story. This is who I am. This is how I will act. You can count on my character. We've talked about how this is in contrast to the gods of the day, the gods of Egypt, the gods of Mesopotamia, the, the varying gods of the ancient Near East that were, uh, that were petty, that were angry, that were mean, that responded to uh, sacrifices, or if you were disobedient or disloyal, they would lash out at you, all of that. And God is setting himself apart. He says, I am a God, but not like those other gods that you're familiar with, not like those gods that lash out at you or that are angry with you or that are impatient with you or that fluctuate from era to era. I am a different kind of God than that. And he starts off, uh, in fact, we'll, we'll actually read the whole section and then do a, qu a quick review. So if you have your Bibles, go to Exodus 34, verses six and seven. Moses says, show me your glory, <clears throat> a powerful uh, request, show me your glory, and this is what God does. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Yahweh, Yahweh, he starts off by saying his name twice and his name means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. He's telling Israel that who he is is consistent and faithful and steadfast. It will not change. This is who I am. As you get to know me, you can know that these are bankable qualities. These are characteristics that will not change. 
even when you want them to, they will not change. If you remember, we talked about the Pharisees. God says that he is merciful and gracious, and the Pharisees found a cap to that mercy and grace. There were people that they did not want the mercy and grace of Yahweh to extend to, and when Jesus went there, it was offensive to them. A prostitute washing Jesus' feet with her hair, a woman caught in adultery, a leper who Jesus touched, a bleeding woman who reached out and grabbed him, these various kinds of people that were outcasts to society and that the Pharisees wanted on the outside looking in. And Jesus went straight through every blockade, every barrier, every cultural and religious thing that would keep a person away from it. He charged through them to show his mercy and grace and it made people uncomfortable. And we talked about how sometimes the character of God actually makes us uncomfortable. It's great in small portions. We love grace when it applies to us, but we want justice when it comes to the people that we don't like and that are doing things to harm us. We love justice when it, when it feels right, when it feels good, when it, when it makes sense. We don't like the justice of God when we understand the depths of our own depravity and the responsibility that we have for our own sinfulness. The justice of God can be offensive to us. And so it's hard for us to wrap our heads around this God. One of the things that we talked about is the importance of learning who God is from God himself. We mentioned a Mark Twain quote that God created man in his own image and man being a gentleman returned the favor. Our tendency is to imagine a God, to create a God that thinks like us, that speaks like us, that acts like us, that judges like us. We like that God. He makes sense to us. He fits in our understanding, but it is hard for us to wrap our heads around God as he presents himself to us, and that is the discipline of Exodus 34 is saying, I'm not going to follow a God that I have invented. I'm gonna follow God as he presents himself and all the challenges that come with that, all the, the stretching that comes with that. So we went through the various uh, sections that he's talked about so far and it leads us to our pairing today. So we've been through a God merciful and gracious. We talked about how mercy is God's feeling towards us like a mother caring for a little child. He wants to be with us. There's a love and an ache and a compassion and a heart that goes. God feels towards us but it's not just feeling. He has grace. He acts in that feeling and those are paired together merciful and gracious. My feeling that I have towards you is followed up by the actions that I carry out. They are built out of my, my mercy, my compassion that I have for you. We talked about God being slow to anger. And the unfortunate part of that message last week is that we felt like we needed to establish that God gets angry before we could talk about his quality of patience. For many of us, we don't have a framework for the wrath of God. We don't believe in an angry God, a God who hates injustice, who hates the wicked. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around that. Whereas for these Hebrews, that would have been the very natural understanding of God. Of course, God hates injustice, but God is slow to anger. He holds off on pouring out his wrath. It's why every time you sin, you are not struck down by lightning. God is patient with you. He is slow to anger. That's the nature of God's character is that he is slow to anger and we will get to the depths of his wrath and his anger next week, which should be a blast, by the way. Merry Christmas, God's wrath, <laughs> all right? This week, we have a, a very important word pairing. God says that he is 
abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the phrase that we're going to be looking at today. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, the interesting thing about this is in the Hebrew, that's two words. Hesed hemet, or if you really want to give it a go, chesed hemet, all right? That is the nature of those two words, and people have said if you were to try and translate those to English, mainly hesed, if you were to try and translate hesed to English, it would take an entire paragraph. Abounding in steadfast love is a decent shot at it, but still insufficient. So here's the important thing to remember. We're going to talk about both of the words. If you remember the structure of our messages, we're going to talk about the Hebrew words and what they mean. Then we're going to look at the Old Testament and how it views God through that lens. Then we're going to look at Jesus as the embodiment of Hesed Hemet. And then we're going to look at us. If we're becoming like God, what does it mean for us to grow in our expression, our understanding, and our living out of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. So that's what today is all about. So let's talk about Hesed Hemet. Hesed is most often translated as steadfast love or abounding in steadfast love, and it's, it's, a, it's a good attempt. But here's the thing. Most of us tend to operate with love through our kind of more modern understanding. Just think of the idea of how we get married these days. Uh, you meet somebody and determine do we like each other? That's step one. Then you spend some time together and determine, do we love each other? Am I in love with this person? Am I attracted to them? Am I compatible with them? Do I feel towards them? And that is typically where we go with getting married. This is all brand new to culture, by the way. Within the last 100 to 200 years, this idea of romantic love as taking precedence in how people get married. Right? For so many generations, it was way more transactional. Uh, your dad and your dad like to do business, so therefore kid and daughter are getting married. That's how it's going to go. That was the nature of weddings long before we ever have this idea of, do I love this person? And so here we are now, we have this kind of in love, out of love mentality. It's, to be totally honest, it's a big part of why the divorce rate is as high as it is in the world, is we fall in love with people and, you've heard the phrase, we fell out of love. We didn't love each other anymore. So we got divorced. The challenge with that is that that is a very different perspective of love than what the Bible would teach us, and the concept of marriage is built off of a different concept of love than what we operate in. That's why divorce is as often and high as it is these days, is it's based off of a different kind of love than what marriage was built to be sustained by. And that's the kind of love that God is starting to present himself. So let's talk about that. So his steadfast love, we know it's not a feeling because we already talked about feelings. That's Rahum. That's God's mercy, his compassion, his like a mother for her nursing child. That's the feeling that God has towards us. So why do we also need steadfast love? Because we're not talking about feelings anymore. Now we're actually talking about how God functions. So God is telling us that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what he means is that I am loyal and diligent in my pursuit of, of my people, my creation. I will never stop operating for my creation is the nature of what God is saying. He is abounding in steadfast love. This is how I am driven. This is at the core of who I am is this overflow of 
pursuit and loyalty and diligence to, the, to what I have created. So we are not a, a write-off in God's mind. He is not dismissive of his creation. He has not forgotten us. He won't just kind of drop the ball. That will never be the case. God is now and has always been a God who is faithful to his diligence to be faithful in his ongoing love of his faithfulness that is love. That's the word pairing. It's designed to just be constantly feeding each other his love and his faithfulness to that love which produces his faithfulness which informs that love. Do you, do you get that? These are designed to just be like a, like a flywheel effect where the, the love of God just grows and grows and grows and grows. He's abounding in it. Now here's why this is critical for us to understand. We get a lot of people that will come to us in shame and guilt of who they are and what they've done in life and will articulate to us I have crossed some line somewhere and it's, I'm outside of God's grace. I have gone too far for God's love to extend to me, his grace to extend to me. I've done too much. I said the wrong things. I went to the wrong places. I was with the wrong people. I made the wrong decisions. I rejected God in everything inside of me. I have crossed the line. God is ashamed of me, angry with me, disgusted by me, or he's forgotten me. One of the things that you need to hear this morning is that God is telling you that that is not possible. In other words, what he's saying when he says, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, is that you think I've forgotten you. You think that I'm ashamed of you or that I'm disgusted by you. You think that I don't want you, but you fail to realize the bigness and completeness of the aboundingness of the steadfastness of the love that I have for you that is faithful to be loving and diligent to pursue you. When you think that you have outsinned me and I see you on the horizon, I run at you, I throw a cloak around you, I put a ring on your finger, I call for the fattened calf. You think you're coming back as a servant. Maybe this God will give me the scraps, but I throw the robe on you, put the ring on you, call you my son, call you my daughter, and give you my best, the full inheritance, as though you never wasted it away. You are my child, my son, my daughter. That is the abounding, steadfast love and faithfulness of God. Even when we get to next week, when we talk about the wrath of God and he will not clear the guilty and visit the iniquity of the fathers on the third and the fourth generation, that terrifying passage that might have been looming in the back of your head for the last five weeks, even when we get to that, it's, it's important to understand that this passage, the hesed hemet of God, is his engine. This is who I am and everything flows out of this. When we read in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, that is not an emotional love. God's not talking in that moment about, man, I really, really, really like this world that I created. Again, that's how we read it. God is in love with this world. It's just, we, we kind of, but we, what we don't understand is the, the divine obligation and devotion that God has towards his creation that produces his son being sent. 
So let's talk about this, because this love has an application, and the primary application of the hesed hemet of God is not actually in how God feels towards us, but it's in the dynamics of the relationship that God creates with his people. If that sentence doesn't make any sense to you, let's talk about the idea of a covenant, because that's where this is seen most clearly. God makes a number of covenants throughout the Bible. Uh, you could spend time reading through them. The main four are the covenant that he makes with Noah, the covenant that he makes with Abraham, the covenant that he makes with Moses, the covenant that he makes with David, and we'll add the fifth, which is called the new covenant that he makes through Jesus, okay? So the four Old Testament covenants and then a fifth covenant, the New Testament one. Now, we're not really gonna get into all of them. We'll, we'll basically break them down into two categories, you have conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. Now, the language of covenant is kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around. We don't really operate in covenants in our era, in our day and age. We might use that language at a wedding. That's about the closest that we get to it. But even then, even in our modern day weddings, we operate more contractually than we do covenantally. We do the ceremony, and that's a good thing, and it's important to have that. A lot of people take communion at, the, uh, at a wedding ceremony, and it's, it's kind of built on the blood of Christ. That's an important declaration. If you are considering getting married, I love communion at weddings because I think it's an important statement that this, this is built on the blood of Christ and not just the words that we say to each other. Besides the point, I'm not a wedding planner. <laughs> that's the closest that we get but we still find ourselves overlapping with contractual language to the point where we sign a paper that makes us married and look at how we divorce. If we thought of marriage covenantally, our divorces would be very different than they are, but we think of marriage contractually, and so all we really have to do is sign a piece of paper and work out the details, and then our marriages go other directions. It doesn't exist anymore. So if we viewed marriage contractually, uh, if, I'm sorry, if we viewed marriage covenantally, it would have a different outcome in how we divorce. Just throwing that out there. So just to give you an idea, we love the language of covenants, but we don't even yet fully understand a covenant. So a covenant is a relationship with an agreed upon dynamic or an agreed upon parameter. There's a an extra piece because that sounds a lot like a contract. The extra piece is that the two parties agree to the consequences of the breaking of that covenant. And so the way that this plays out, I know I mentioned I'd talk about conditional and unconditional covenants, and we'll get there. The way that this pans out is that often covenants were sealed with blood. And the blood covenant was a picture given to say, whoever breaks this covenant, the blood is on their head. The curse is on the person who breaks this covenant. That's the nature of a covenantal relationship that God is starting to use the language of. So now let's talk about conditional and unconditional. Conditional covenants, this is what would happen at Mount Sinai uh, with Moses and the law. God says, this is what I will do. And Israel, this is what you will do. And God says, I promise that I will do these things. And Israel says, all that you have said, we will do. So there, it's like a wedding. That's that moment. Will you? I do. Will you? I do. Okay. We understand it. And there's that really weird scene, if you've ever read through Exodus, where Moses takes the branch and dips it in the blood and splashes it on the people. You never want to be in that crowd. That just sounds crazy, that you would have blood of an animal splashed all over you, but it's an important symbol of a blood covenant. Again, whoever breaks this covenant, the blood is on them. The curse is on them. 
And so God is presenting himself to Israel, but there's very much a, a loaded condition in that, and that is obedience. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So now let's talk about unconditional covenants. These are the ones where God says, I will do this, but there is no expectation on the other end, and God seals the covenant. One example of this is Noah. I will never do this again. And he gives the sign of the rainbow, and there's a covenant that God makes. This is my promise, period. Next one, the major one, is Abraham. So let's talk about that. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you're going to get over there and we're going to spend some time there in 12 and 15. So it's worth turning. There's stuff that is very important in this to understand the Hesed Hemet of God. All right. So for the sake of argument, Abram in Genesis 12 and 15 becomes Abraham in Genesis 17. Just for the sake of all being on the same page, I'm going to call him Abraham every time. But if you look at Genesis 12 and say, his name's Abram, I'm going to be really upset with you because I'm saying this right now. We're going to call him Abraham, all right? So here we go, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, this is the important part, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is more promise. This is like pre-covenant because no covenant has been made yet. This is God saying to Abraham, I am going to do something through you and your family that has resounding effects for every generation. In you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is an important statement and it's something that we hold on to. We keep that in the back of our minds that we understand that God has vision for way beyond Abraham, way beyond Israel. He is going to take his work to the families of the earth, to every family, every nation of every people on the earth. Okay, fast forward to Genesis 15. This is where the covenant happens. In Genesis 15, a note that you need to mark in your minds, uh, Genesis 15, 6. If you've ever read Romans 4, it's based off of Genesis 15, 6. It's essentially commentary on Genesis 15, 6. You might just want to write that down. If you, haven't, if you don't have Romans 4 in your brains, just write it down, save it for later, and, and uh, head back to that on your own time. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteous. So God has told Abraham, I am going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And then he tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. But Abraham's like in his 90s and his wife's in her 90s and they're having a hard time wrapping their head around this. It's an important note to you older folks. God might not be done with you. There's always a chance. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> so Abraham and Sarah hear from God that they are still going to have a child and they're struggling to wrap their heads around it, but Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is kind of the, uh, the foretaste of faith and grace. It's important to see that. This is like a precursor to the gospel. Uh, he believed God and the righteousness of God was imputed or placed on Abraham, okay? Fast forward to verse eight. Abraham's a little curious about how this is all gonna go about. So he says, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How do I know that you are fulfilling your promise? How do I know that you're going to be faithful? I'm old. I believe you. I'm in. But I'm still struggling to know how this is all going to come together. 
So then what we get is a very weird ceremony. And this is important for you to grab. If you've ever read through Genesis and wondered where this comes from, why this is, God tells Abraham to take a bunch of animals, to cut them in half, and put them on two sides of a pathway. You might be thinking about that, like, okay, what's that all about? Why are we splitting animals? That's not what happened at the Toyota dealership when I bought my last car. Like, what is going on here? This is different. And it is. It's very, very, very different. This was a a Mesopotamian covenant ritual. God is coming down and speaking human language. He's saying, this is how you understand covenants, so I'm going to operate in your framework. We're going to divide the animals, and in in the Mesopotamian covenant ritual, two people who were committing to a covenant bind would walk through together and seal the covenant and say, essentially, this blood is on the head of anyone who breaks this covenant. Okay, so that's the context. Now let's look at the passage. Genesis 15, starting in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Have you read the book of Exodus? If you haven't, you just did. This is God's prophecy of the entire book of Exodus with Abraham, who will never see this come to fulfillment, but God is saying, know for certain this is happening. All right? He continues. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's something we could go into. We're not going to. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. And behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, the animal pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land. And then he gives all the boundaries. Here's what you need to to hear from this. The flaming pot and the torch, those are representative of Yahweh passing through the covenant pieces on his own. Abraham does not walk through them. This is the difference between a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant. A conditional covenant, if you, I will. If you, I will. An unconditional covenant is Yahweh saying, Here's what I'm going to do, and if I don't, the curse is on me and me alone. I am the only one that is responsible for faithfulness to this particular covenant. Now, you've got to kind of read the Old Testament with now two layers in mind, because you've got this, the Abrahamic covenant that operates as an umbrella, not just, to, not just to the Old Testament, but to the entire Bible. And then in just the next book over, we're going to get what's called the Mosaic Covenant or the covenant that God makes with Moses that we see when God introduces the new covenant through the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he will reference this covenant that you broke. Now here's the conditional covenant. God makes a law with Israel. I'm holy, you're unholy. How can we be in relationship together? We have this law. Walk in obedience to this law. Be faithful to this law. We have these sacrifices, day of atonement. We have this relationship that we can have with each other so that we can walk together in unity so that we can be faithful to each other. Do you, Israel, take Yahweh to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you, Yahweh, take Israel to be your lawfully wedded wife? I do, I do. And we have a covenant. Here's the problem. Israel 
on her wedding night was unfaithful to her husband. While the ceremony was still taking place on Mount Sinai, Israel is down at the bottom of the mountain worshiping a golden calf, a a false god. And it's an important statement. God doesn't make covenants with people because he thinks people can keep covenants. God didn't make a covenant with Israel because they were slightly better than the Canaanites, slightly better than the Perizzites, slightly better than the Amorites, and on and on and on. He didn't choose Israel because they were better than, and the evidence is in the golden calf. On their wedding night, she was unfaithful. And that unfaithfulness continues. Have you read the Old Testament? Have you, have you ever gone through it and just thought, why does Israel even call God their God when they are perpetually unfaithful? I mean, every once in a while, you get a decent king, a decent judge, a good prophet that calls people back to God. You get some flash moments of goodness in the Old Testament, but by and large, how does the Old Testament feel when you read it? Oh, this is rough. What is going on here? They are perpetually unfaithful. So much so that God uses the prophet Hosea to demonstrate the unfaithfulness of Israel to her. He calls his prophet to marry Gomer, who is a prostitute. And he does not ask Gomer to stop prostituting herself, but he does call Gomer to be faithful to her. You have a faithful husband and a prostitute wife that is frequently going out on her husband over and over and over and over. And God tells Israel, that's us. If you've ever felt like you're in a bad marriage and God doesn't understand, God knows bad marriages. He is very familiar with a terrible marriage. And he is showing us what faithfulness looks like in the face of disobedience. In the the face of unfaithfulness, God is showing us what faithfulness looks like and he's saying, this is my hesed, this is my hemet. I am faithful to you even when you are unfaithful. And God does not exit the covenant until he has promised the new covenant. Now this is, a, this is an interesting debate that you could get into and I apologize for even bringing it up, but, but when does God wrap up the old covenant? Some people believe it's when the curtain tears as Jesus is being crucified on the cross. Others believe it's through uh, Ezekiel's prophecy when the spirit of God leaves the temple. You could debate that and theologians still do. It's it's a big, hot one. Dig in. (laughs) But here's the point. That conditional covenant came to a close. The covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai has come to an end and a new covenant has been born. Go to Luke chapter 22, verse 20. You ever read through the New Testament a couple of times, Jesus says something or does something and people start to pick up rocks and get ready to stone him and he slips out of the crowd or he kind of avoids the moment or whatever. Um, This is one of those scenes. It's the last supper. It's the Passover meal. It's just with his disciples. The 11, Judas has already gone out at this point. It's just with his disciples. If there had been Pharisees or scribes or Sadducees in the room, this would have been one of those moments where they go and grab rocks and pick it up to throw it at him. Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 20. They're in the middle of the Passover meal. 
This cup that Jesus picks is a very significant cup. Again, I'm not going to go into the whole Passover and why this cup matters as much as it does, but Jesus selects this cup of wine and says, and likewise, the cup, uh, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant for you in my blood. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. In the same way that Yahweh was the only one to walk through the animals with Abraham. Jesus is a new covenant and he is the only one. Yahweh is the only one that will go through to begin this new covenant with humanity. And this is a different covenant. It's a covenant that's going to be written on human hearts. That's Jeremiah 31. This is a covenant in which God will give people a new heart. You had a heart of stone, I'm going to give you a new heart. That's Ezekiel. Joel chapter 2. This is a covenant where he will pour out his spirit and he will fill people with his spirit. This is a different kind of relationship where God and man are brought into a right, a reconciled relationship with each other. So much so, like the extent of this covenant, it's so complete and so full. This is the Hesed Hamed of God. I will not forget you. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. I will go to the cross so that we can be in relationship with each other and not just so that you can skate by into heaven. I am doing this so that you can approach the throne with confidence. That's in Hebrews. You can come to me. You can be my child. You can be my friend. Paul calls himself a bondservant of Christ, but that's his choice. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Our relationship dynamic is changing, Jesus says. This is the new covenant relationship. This is the hesed hamet of Yahweh that Jesus has entered into humanity and said, I will walk through these pieces. I will pour out my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. If it's not, if it's not enough, if I break this covenant, the curse is on me. Which, by the way, Jesus also took on the curse as he hung on the tree. Guys, the layers deep, the substance of what takes place in the cross is so rich. It is, it's beautiful if all you understand about the gospel is that Christ died for our sins and that's just what you have lodged in the back of your head. That's a, a wonderful statement and a big thing, but I want you to know it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and you, every layer deep that this good news of Jesus goes, there is richness and theology to back up the things that are being done. Jesus goes to the cross and we talked about Romans 3 last week. I, I did tell you that this series builds on each other. If you did not listen to last week's message, you sort of need it for some of these key moments as we wrap things up. But Jesus was presented as a propitiation that word propitiation is critical. It's so important because it's that place where God's justice and his mercy can meet and be satisfied fully and completely. That God can put Jesus forth where he can be the recipient of God's wrath for all sin for all time. 
First John 2, 2, he's a propitiation not only for our sins, but the sin of the whole world. Every sin that has ever been committed, God's wrath towards that sin is unleashed on Jesus. And not because God is punishing Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. God is, and I know our Trinitarian theology can be strained and stretched from time to time. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. He is pouring out his wrath on himself. He is receiving in his body the sinfulness of all humanity. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin. He was in that moment on the cross the embodiment of all sinfulness as God pours out his wrath on Jesus and he did that so that we might become the righteousness of God. He wants to put on us his righteousness. This is why it's called a gift. This is why it's called the good news. This is why it's called God's grace is because he has said, I know your wickedness. I know you could never live up to the righteous requirements of the law. You could never fulfill your end of a covenant. You and me, we are the unfaithful spouse. There's not one of us that can claim to be the faithful spouse. Not one. Every single one of us has, to put it in the metaphor, cheated on our husband who is God. Every single one of us. Yet God has said, I'm operating on a bigger covenant. That one was conditional and it breaks. But this covenant that I'm making in Jesus, this is an unbreakable covenant. All, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's yours. So here's what you do with this. We'll just wait till the sirens go by for a moment. We work, we have an office next door, fire engines and paramedics, it's all day. It's good. It's not good, but it's there. First of all, if you're, a, if you're not a believer, we just, we want to repeatedly say, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, whether you're here because you're curious or somebody dragged you here, either way, we believe that God is at work, that he's trying to reveal something to you. And I hope what you're hearing is that God is for you. He's not against you. It is not in his nature to work against you. Even his wrath and his anger, as we will see next week, it's not out of a place of being frustrated with you or angry with you. It's out of his love for you and his perfect justice and holiness that God even has wrath. We'll get there but he is for you. And the invitation exists for you to walk with him. Experience his grace. He calls it a gift. This is God's gift to you that you would experience all of what he has for you. His hesed hemet, his steadfast love and faithfulness is for you. He is after you. That's why I can say boldly, and you can, you can call me out for saying this too boldly, but whether you are here because you're curious and exploring or you're here because you got dragged here, I still believe that God brought you here and he has a purpose for you being here. I fully believe that. He is at work. He wants to say something to you right now. God doesn't release you. He doesn't let go. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is diligent to his promises and he promised that all the nations in the earth would be blessed. He is after you that you would not perish 
but experience his grace, his life, his goodness. He wants you. That's the point. He wants you. So don't walk out of here thinking, God doesn't want me. You need to walk out of here thinking, if he's real, God wants me. Now, for those of us that are believers in Jesus, there's something that we need to take on from this. So we are being shaped into the image of Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. So he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what is the call on us? What do we do with this? If you have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to spend the rest of our time here. This is a real good section. You're going to see some verses in here that you might be familiar with. We're going to start in verse 14, which is, I realize, the middle of a paragraph. So for those of you that are annoyed by that, deal with it. Paul is writing this. I want you to, I want you to remember Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and said, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is what drives me. This is what makes me do what I do, is that I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us, or if you have the NIV, compels us. The love of Christ is what drives us to do what we do. Paul is taking on God's engine of his abounding steadfast love and faithfulness and he is putting it now on his own life. The love of, of Christ controls me because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul is saying because the gospel because Jesus came and died so that I don't have to die, now my life is not my own, but it belongs to him. If you're, if you're familiar with the scriptures and you're familiar with Galatians 2.20, it's the same verse. He just wrote it differently to two different churches. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I don't live anymore but Christ lives in me and through me. The love of Christ controls me because he came and died, so everybody that lives, we just live for him now. Our life is his. Or it says it another way to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's saying the same thing over and over. What is he saying? This is what he's saying. From now on, therefore, verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. You might have heard me say that about 60 times over the last six months. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's what we need to do in this. 
If we're going to grow in abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, we need to start adopting the heart, the posture, the, the mindset of God. That's what's going to grow us into that. He says, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. How can, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? How can he function that way? How can God love his enemies at that pace, at that level? How does that even work? Because God doesn't view us in our frustrating flesh and blood. Our silly brokenness that just repeatedly goes to our sinfulness time and time and time again. He sees us in this created way of the people, the souls that he desires to have with him, the, the life. He sees you and he's here to reconcile you to himself. Have you ever been in a situation, I gotta wrap up so maybe I shouldn't do hypotheticals, but I'll go for it. Have you ever been in a situation where you know the information that needs to be known and so you can kind of avoid the emotion of a circumstance but there are other people there that are just duking it out and bickering and that kind of a thing? You ever been in that kind of, it's a weird situation to be in but you're like, all right, I get it. Especially if you're a counselor, if you're a, um, a social worker, if you're, you know, if you work in like a high school, I did peer counseling with high schools for a while. It's like you're, you're just like slightly elevated. You have maybe a, just a bit of a different perspective of what's going on but the people involved are just going to town. All right. God is inviting us to be people that see the world not just as from like the isolated perspective as a singular human being. How the world impacts me, how frustrated I get when people do things that offend me, even the nature of being offended, God's inviting us to, to drop that. To not just put up with our enemies, but to love them. To not just take the persecution, but to pray for those who persecute us. We're operating, God's inviting us to operate on a totally different level where while the world is going on around us, he's saying, I, just want, I want you to look at them the way that I look at them. I want you to see them as people that are lost and broken and hurting and lonely and don't know how to engage the world. And I want you, you've been given now the message and the ministry of reconciliation. So your job is to go into this and to help reconcile them to the Father. Your job is to go into a broken world and not get caught up in the broken world. We're to be in the world, but not of it. Not to get caught up in the broken world, but to actually engage it as people who have the message of reconciliation. The ability to show people the hesed hemet of God, that he loves them, that he has more for them, that he can bring them to himself, that he can restore them, that he can heal them, that he can mend their broken hearts. So you are his ambassadors. That idea of being an ambassador, basically taking on the character quality of the one who sends you. The ambassador is designed not to go out with his own message, but to go out, let's just use our U.S. The U.S. ambassadors are not to go out with their own message and create their own narrative. They are to take the narrative and the message of the president and deliver it to foreign nations. That's what they're supposed to be doing. That's, that's what we've built. That's the nature of ambassadorial language. And so you are to take this and deliver it to this broken world. So if we're going to if we're going to grow to be like God, 
part of this is learning how to, how to grow our faithfulness, our diligence to the grace uh, that God has for people. To not get caught up in the world and be frustrated with it, but to be a benefit, a blessing, a minister to this broken world, to love it well. That's the call. I don't know if that sinks in with you. I don't know if this message sinks in with you. I should have said this at the beginning. I'm having the best time teaching this series. I'm learning so much. It's stretching me like crazy, even to the point where I could almost not care if you're getting anything out of it. I'm loving it that much. (laughs) It's like shaping new things in me and stirring me to, to deeper faith and to deeper pursuit. I am, honestly, it's kind of, messing with me a little bit, a lot bit. And so when I, when I call you to this, it's not, it's not like, hey, y'all should figure this out. Like, this is, this is pulling me into a different way of life. And I, I would love for us as a church to be on this journey together. So I'm gonna pray for us, and then we'll, we'll respond to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are for us. You are so for us that you sent your son that whoever would believe in him would not experience the wrath of God, but instead would be given eternal life and the righteousness of Yahweh would be put on us to where we will be called holy and beloved we're new creations. The old has passed away and the new has come and you, you've delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son. You call us sons and daughters. We were wretched and broken and pitiful and blind. We still have these remnants of our brokenness that we carry with us yet you are gracious and gracious and gracious and gracious. You were so diligent and faithful to your love and pursuit of us that it is astonishing, it's shocking, and even embarrassing at times that we would need that. Thank you. Jesus, would our worship be built out of some different kind of place today? Give us understanding that produces worship. We want that. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray, amen.